Welcome everyone to Foothills. If you're visiting with us on campus for the first time, we're so glad that you were here. Hope you feel welcome. If you're watching for the first time online, we're really glad that you are joining us. As a church, one of our goals is to help you grow in your faith because we believe a strong faith is a foundation for every good thing in your life. Now, uh, on the 4th of July, this is Sunday right before the Fourth of July celebration when our nation is going to celebrate its 247th birthday in the state of Idaho. Ours is on Monday, which is 133 years old. So we're a little younger than uh, the United States, but hey, we're all apart now. Now, the American experiment from 247 years ago has resulted in the most successful nation in the history of the world. Even with its uh, misguidedness at times, some of its uh, mistakes, it has always had a principle that helped correct, realign, and direct and guide it into the future. And that principle has built, developed, and grown the United States into the greatest and most successful nation in the history of the world. And so it's really quite remarkable what it has accomplished. Now, our forefathers were very deeply religious people. They were deep people of faith. And so over the years, I've kind of taught about America and our political system. And I have talked about how faith is influenced. And we are technically what is called a constitutional republic, which is pretty unique. And, but that's what we are. Hopefully you learned that in civics class. However, it has not been emphasized as much in the last 30 years. Now, one thing I have taught on over and over over the years is this. And it's a little controversial, but I want you to really think about it so that you can understand. And that is our form of government, a constitutional republic, is not Christianity. They are not synonymous or equal. It is not the gospel. There's no place in the New Testament that says you shall form a constitutional republic and vote on it. That doesn't appear in the New Testament. However... It's very important to understand, without Christianity, the tree of liberty, the constitutional republic that we have today, would not exist. That's very important. So Christianity is the soil, the principles and the values out of which the tree of liberty that we have today grew. And so if our nation kind of abandons the soil in which this grew out of, we're going to cease to have a fruitful tree of liberty, so to speak. It reminds me of an atheist once who was writing about his work in Africa. He had been working with NGOs all through Africa for decades and decades. And he said, it's hard for me to say as an atheist, but I've come to the conclusion that I hope Africa gets Christianity. He says, even though I don't believe it, I don't think it's true. I cannot deny that wherever Christianity has taken root in African nations, those nations have become far better places than all the nations around them locked in tribalism. He said, so I hope they get it, even though it's not true, because it will help advance. And so I think it's really kind of interesting is that how Christianity comes in and impacts individuals, then those individuals interact with each other in a new way. They do life in a new way. And then ultimately what that does is that 
that kind of springs values and principles that kind of flow downstream and change the, the way everybody lives. So <clears throat> it's a very important distinction, but it's one that is important to note because I want to teach you a little Latin, okay, about the principle that has kind of helped guide America and allowed it to be so successful. It's a little bit of uh, Latin, and I'll say it first, and then you say it, okay? It's e pluribus unum, all right? You want to say that with me? Let's go. E pluribus unum, okay? Now, what's important of this Latin? Well, this Latin phrase appears on the official seal of the United States of America, which is in still usage today. It's also one of the oldest symbols or documents in the history of America. The Declaration of Independence was signed, and then the seal was developed, and then the Constitution was ratified. What's interesting about it is on this seal, it says the following words, E pluribus unum. And the question is, what does that Latin mean? Well, it's a very simple statement. All it means is, out of many, one. Out of many, one. And the point is, is that out of any ethnic background, social background, nation that you came for, language you speak, it didn't matter because there was this one principle that we could all rally around, right? The principle of freedom and liberty. And out of all these many different backgrounds, we could become one. It wasn't based on our ethnicity or the language we spoke or the nation that we came from. It was based on, do we want to adopt this principle of liberty that has been articulated in this constitutional republic? So, of course, me being a historian, I always want to ask the question is, well, where in the world did they get that idea in the first place? Where did it come from? I mean, did they just sit around one day and they're playing poker, you know, and somebody said, hey, man, maybe we ought to kick around some new thing. Or did it actually come from somewhere? Well, it actually came from somewhere. And the place that it came from is the parable of the good Samaritan. And this is fascinating to me. So let's dig into the parable of the good Samaritan. Let's see what it means. And let's see why it's so significant. And then hopefully, if I do my job well, I'll circle all the way around and bring it all together for you. So let's read it, starting with verse 25 of the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. So we're in Luke, and we are in the 10th chapter, and we're going to begin with verse 25. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to talk about it, okay? Uh, on one occasion, verse 25, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. This is all, your, your translation might say lawyer, okay? And it's up there on the screen as lawyer. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? And he answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what this is, is this is a summary of the whole law. It comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, the law was incredibly extensive. As a matter of fact, if you were a male and you were Jewish, you had to memorize the book of Deuteronomy and be able to recite it by the time you were five years old. 
That's pretty remarkable. And the reason why is because the law is just so extensive. There are over 600 different dietary rules alone. And you had to know all that stuff. Well, they, they couldn't just, he couldn't sit there and answer Jesus and recite the whole thing. So what they would do is they would recite this summary. And it all came down to this basic summary. Okay. So he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he wanted to push it a little bit further. He's trying to trap Jesus. He goes, so tell me, who is my neighbor? Now, what, what he's doing is, is that in the rabbinic law, as it had developed over a long period of time, is that they had narrowed the definition of neighbor. Because when you read in the Old Testament, initially, the, the definition of neighbor was just about anybody. And so the Jewish people in Genesis chapter 12 were originally under a covenant called the Abrimic, short for Abraham, the Abrimic covenant. And basically it was said, God said, I will bless you. I choose you as my chosen people because I want to bless you in order to bless other nations. And unfortunately, over time in a few generations, they took that to mean that, well, we're chosen uh, not to go to you and bless you. We're chosen and you're not. So it kind of got narrower and then it got even more narrow, even within Judaism. So that it ended up that the only person that you could consider that you had to love like yourself, that you consider your neighbor is what? The person who looked like you, talked like you, ate like you, dressed like you, all that kind of stuff. So they narrowed the definition because they couldn't change the law. Hey, you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. And so what you do is you narrow the definition of what your neighbor is in order to exclude as many people as possible. Jesus then tells him this parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem is where the temple was. Jericho is down by the Dead Sea. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, or took pity on him. He went to him, and he bandaged his wounds pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, uh, which is basically, a denarii is basically a day's wage. So whatever you make in a day, if it's 300 bucks, he took out 600 bucks and gave it to the guy. He said the next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So then Jesus looks at the lawyer and says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Notice what Jesus does here. It's really interesting is he doesn't say who was the neighbor. He says, who acted neighborly towards the man? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. So we have four characters. We have a Jewish man. He's an Israelite. 
and he is robbed and beaten half to death. Then you have a priest. Now the priests in the Israelite nation were the people designated to maintain the ceremonies of their religious belief for the purpose of God's blessing and fruitfulness of the land. They took it very seriously. They had to go through purification processes. They were selected. You had to be select. You had to be a person. Usually there was a priest in your family and you came from the, the tribe of Levi or you were a Levite. You did all of your duties in the temple. Now you may do duties at your village where you're from in the synagogue so forth. But based upon what tribe, and they had a big organizational structure of how to do this, at some point you would have to go up to Jerusalem and you would uh, serve in the temple for a very short, uh, for a period of time. And then when you're done, you would then go back home. Hence, it's kind of the meaning of he went from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Then he says there was a Levite. And the Levite is interesting. Like I said, in order to be a priest, you had to be a Levite. But just because you're a Levite doesn't mean you're a priest. But if you're a Levite, what this does mean is that you are a temple worker. Now, the temple was the center of so much life in the Jewish nation. And so the temple needed a lot of taking care of. I mean, somebody had to build the temple. They had to take care of the temple. They had to replace, you know, pieces of the roof when it went bad. Somebody had to caulk all the windows, right? Nobody gets my joke anymore. Man, I need, to go. I need a new joke book or something. But, you know, the other thing too is that in the ceremonies, they had to have certain types of food like showbreads and stuff. Somebody had to grow the wheat, harvest the wheat, prepare the wheat. And this was all part of their duties. Had to be done a certain way. They'd make the showbread. Then they had sacrifices. Sometimes they had burnt sacrifices. A lot of times people have to come up and, and uh, they'd have to purchase doves or various different types of animals. Well, somebody had to raise all those and qualify them as pure and acceptable and so forth. So there's a massive economy and all the Levites did that. They had musicians in the temple, and so all the musicians were Levites, okay? So the temple was the whole circle of economy and life for the Levites and the priests. And then comes along a Samaritan. Now, you're not quite sure, that, but you've kind of grown up hearing that, well, guess what? Samaritans and Jews don't get along. They don't like each other. But if you really want to understand the power of this story that Jesus is telling, you have to understand the background. There was a deep-seated hatred between Jewish people and Samaritans, and it was equal. They hated each other. And the reason why is fairly complicated, but let me give it to you just in a nutshell. That is, Israel grew under King Solomon to the largest kingdom that it had ever existed. Then over a period of generations, they couldn't get along. And so the Northern kingdom divided from the Southern kingdom. When the Northern kingdom did that, they disagreed with each other. As what happened is Assyria came in and conquered the Northern kingdom. And then about 150 years later, the Southern kingdom fell uh, to the Babylonians, right? And what happened is when the Assyrians came in, when the Babylonians came in, they did what everybody did is they're going to take all the Jewish people home as slaves. That's kind of what they did is take them all back, but they leave some behind. In the Northern kingdom, the people that were left behind and some Assyrians that stayed married each other and had offspring. They didn't marry anybody else, but just the two, they, bl they blended those two bloodlines. 
And so those were the Samaritans. And so the Jews from the southern kingdom felt like the Samaritans were what they would consider half-breed Jews. They're not pure Jews. They say, okay, so, so what? Well, this caused a big problem because the Samaritans said, guess what? We are of the tribe of Manasseh. We are the tribe of Ephraim. And we are the tribe of Levi. So we are the ones who are the Levitical priests. Not you guys in the South. And so what happened is they ended up building their own temple by the holy city of Shechem in the North. Okay. And I want to show you, I have a map, kind of give you an idea of where this is at. And that is right here, you'll see Jerusalem down here. Just so you know, Jericho is kind of down here, just north of the Dead Sea. It's in a valley. Jericho, uh, Jerusalem is up on a mountain. And so when he says he went down from, or from Jerusalem to Jericho, that he means in elevation. But what you'll notice is the Dead Sea is up here. I'm sorry, Dead Sea is down here. Sea of Galilee is up here. And then what you'll see right here is Mount Gerizim. And they built a massive temple there to worship God. And they said, we are the true descendants of Aaron and the Levites. Uh, just recently, a couple of decades ago, on the top of Mount Gerizim, I have a picture of it, is one of the largest archaeological digs happening in Israel today. And what you will see is this is the actual temple that they are uncovering and digging up. And if you're a student of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, you'll notice there's a lot of similarities on the size and the way it's built and the location of the Holy of Holies, which is in the center. You can kind of see this little rectangle piece there. And so they were reflecting many of the same things. They were trying to build it the same way that the temple in Jerusalem looked. But the reason why they didn't like each other is because in 128 BC, 128 years before Jesus was born, John uh, Hyrcanus was the high priest in Jerusalem of Israel, the Jewish nation. He was the prince of the Jews. And what he did is he demanded that the Samaritans give up this temple, all right? And say, you need to become fully Jewish. Well, what happened is they said no. And so he took an army up there and he destroyed that temple. Killed a whole bunch of Samaritans that were guarding it. Went to war with them, destroyed that temple, just completely ruined it. Well, the Samaritans, even though they lost that battle and they were defeated, they were not to be outdone. So you know what they did? They decided we're going to desecrate the temple in Jerusalem. And so what they did is they took dead bones because in the law, it says if you touch dead bones or you're around dead bones, that is a desecration. And you have to go through this long purification process before you can be considered pure again. So they took a bunch of bones of dead humans and they snuck them into the temple in Jerusalem and then they threw them into every place that they could get in order to desecrate the temple. It was an incredible offense. So you can see this isn't just a nanny nanny boo boo. We don't like you. Their animosity towards each other was deep. As a matter of fact, in John chapter eight, the Pharisees were looking at Jesus and they're saying, he is demon possessed. He is demon possessed. And, and he's a Samaritan. That's how, that's how angry and offensive that term was. You, you, just, you just didn't say it. It's like, it's like today saying the N word out loud. I mean, it was so offensive. 
There, there were rabbis that taught if you ate any bread that a Samaritan baked, that was the same thing as eating pork, which is the biggest offense in the dietary laws for the Jews. Another rabbi said this, if you marry a Samaritan woman, that's the same thing as sleeping with an animal. So they accused you, if you married a Samaritan woman, of bestiality. So are you starting to get the feel that these people had more than just a little grudge? What they had was they had hatred for one another, okay? Now, most people in America interpret this parable one way. Oh, I'm, I'm the magnanimous Samaritan, and so I'm going to treat people regardless of their ethnicity. That's how a lot of people do that. But the problem with that is you don't understand that the Samaritans hated the Jews as much as the Jews hated the Samaritans. So the main point of this parable is not that Jews were bad and Samaritans were awesome. The point was, is it was the Samaritan who overcame his own hatred for this Jewish person and ministered to their need. So let's go a little deeper and seek understanding by answering the questions in the parable that Jesus was being asked or asking and answering. Okay. And the very first question that came to Jesus in this situation was this, how am I saved? How am I to inherit eternal Life And the reason why the lawyer did this was to test Jesus. He's trying to trap him in a contradiction. He's trying to say, well, if you say this or say this, I can catch him in a contradiction. And then I can say, look, you don't take the law seriously. And if that happens, then we can label you as a rebel, right? Because if you say it this way, then the Romans will be upset with you. But if you don't say it this way, the Jewish leadership will be upset with you. So either way, we'll put you in a trap, make you answer. And then guess what? We'll cancel you. We'll get rid of you. We will deny you an audience. What's interesting about that, in my opinion, is that today people try to trap people who follow Jesus, Christians, in contradictions all the time. The one that I hear more than anything else is this, and that is you can't judge because you're a Christian and Christians aren't allowed to judge. My first response is, well, that's a very judgy statement you just said, <laughs> right? I mean, and you're judging me being judgy. So I'm not quite how to settle that, but, but th that's what happens. The other thing that I hear this is that, well, Christians are supposed to love you know, and love is love. And that means that you have to do whatever I say or you're not loving. You have to agree with me or you're not loving. Uh, a number of years ago, we were doing a thing on faith and science and we took out ads on Facebook, you know, where you just say, hey, we, we're gonna, we just want you to just send this out as an ad. Well, it just so happened to pop up on a guy who was an atheist. Uh, he was a... Uh, he worked in the football program at Boise State University. I don't think he's there anymore. But he took great offense that our church had put an ad out about faith and science, right? And so he started saying, you know, posting things, I guess, uh, on our official Facebook page. I'm not really quite sure how that works because I'm not a Facebooker. The only reason I ever got a Facebook account was so that I could see what my kids were doing, and that was it, right? So over there, 
that is happening, and, and, but it's on the church, you know, and we use it to advertise a little bit. So it, that was going on. And so what happened is people in our church started trying to answer this guy's criticisms, right? Because he was saying that, you know, oh, you hate everybody, you don't hate anybody, and you're the cause of all the wars, and, you know, there's no rational person, you know, that believes, you know, faith is totally irrational, there's no proof of God, you know, so he's saying all this stuff, right? He's, he's posting, you know, I mean, his fingers, you know, were just like, I bet he's got calluses on him because he's typing so much stuff out there. And our people in our church were kind of answering and answering back. And somebody said, pastor, this thing is really heating up. You got to read this stuff. I was like, really? I go, I don't really care. And the reason why is because a lot of times, uh, because I do what I do, I don't know how to phrase this right. Cause I don't want to sound weird about it, but people criticize what I do and how I do it all the time, all the time. And And over the years, you just kind of like get tone deaf to it. And so when someone is, is like on a Facebook thing saying bad things, I don't care. I mean, opinions are like noses. Everybody has one and they all smell, (laughs) right? So I'm thinking, oh, no big deal. But what happened here is that then this person starts going after people in our church, stuff like that. And I go, oh, now you're getting my hackles up a little bit. You know, you're going after my people and you're saying really insulting things towards them. So, so I get on there. And so I respond. He says, well, there are no proofs of God. I go, yes, there are. There's Anselm's argument. There's the ontological argument. There's the C.S. Lewis's argument from desire. I said, the problem is, is that you're irrational and you just reject them. Instead of refuting them, you, you won't, you, you just reject them and use ad hominem attacks, calling people names. So the only irrational person in this discussion is you, not me. You know, well, he's mad. He's over there. Well, you're such blah, 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 blah. I never met this person. I don't even know what he looks like. I don't even know his name. And so he's calling into my, you know, my ancestral heritage. He's calling into question, you know, uh, all kinds of things about my character. It's just kind of interesting. And so I, I would ping back and I'd say this. And I'd say, well, here's all the proofs and here's this. And so he was just getting crazier and crazier. And one day he goes, you're never going to convince me. You're never going to convince me. And then I finally wrote back to him that ended the whole discussion. I just said, I said, I haven't been writing to convince you of anything. I said, I'm not writing any of this for you. Haven't you figured that out? See, I wasn't trying to convince him of anything at all. I was writing to show all of our people in our church who'd gotten engaged in this, that there is a rational, logical argument for God and for faith. And what these people are saying is not true. See, I didn't care about convincing him. It was everybody who was reading this dialogue. Now, if you miss the actual point of this parable, then you can be easily manipulated by false contradictions. There's come this notion that Christians aren't supposed to articulate and stand up for what is true. Because doing that means you're mean or hateful. Well, you can be obnoxious and and a jerk about it. That's not acceptable. But you have to stand up for what's true and what's right. And Christ even said, you'll be hated for your righteousness. You'll be persecuted for it. So expect it, right? Because people don't like 
that. That's why it's so important to get the actual point of this parable so that I'm not manipulated by the people around us, pushing me into a corner where I can't stand up for the gospel of Christ. And that leads to the second thing in this parable that's so important. Why Jesus told the story is because the lawyer asked him, who is my neighbor? Remember how I told you earlier, they had narrowed it down to nobody. And this is what's really fascinating is that Jesus uses the actions of the Samaritan to determine who was neighborly, not who was the recipient of, of the designation neighbor. In other words, another way to phrase it is this, your neighbor is not defined by the group that they are in, but by the need they have. Your neighbor is not a category or a group identity. There is no call in Christianity, no obligation. There is zero responsibility to love a group identity. We are asked to love people. That's it. It doesn't matter what your label is. We're just called to love people. I've said in the past, and I think people have to think on this a little bit, is that we are a no-adjective church. We come out of a movement that basically says we want to just be known as followers of Christ alone. That's it. And that's because uh, in America there were so many different denominations and people were fighting over doctrinal beliefs that really didn't matter anymore. We'd lost this capacity to be unified. And so we use the term no-adjective church. So whenever you use an adjective, if you remember your English grammar is that an adjective exists for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is, is to change the noun it's modifying. All we want to be known as followers of Christ, just Christians. So we don't want adjectives on there. So people say, well, are you a conservative church? No, we're just a Christians. Are you a liberal Christian? Are you a progressive Christian? Or are you a traditional Christian? Christian. We just want to be known as people following Christ. We don't want a bunch of adjectives. Now we have really strong positions on orthodoxy. It's on our website. If you're watching online, you want to check those out. It's called the code. Feel free. No secret, complete transparency. But, but the, per, the point is, is that in not being an adjective church, what we're doing is we're saying we want to be known not from our modifiers, but by our Lord and Savior and our allegiance to him above all else. That's it. We just want to be followers of Jesus. So what we do is we don't recognize identity groups out there. When people say, oh, I'm part of this group or I'm a part of that group. My political affiliation is this. My political affiliation is that. My stance on this is that. I'm a part of this group or I'm a part of that group. Don't really care. I will love you as myself, as my neighbor. And my neighbor is not a group identity. A neighbor is a person in need, pure and simple. Now, the way we apply this is very unique, and that is, is that first we must determine what people need before we try and meet that need, because what people want and what they need are vastly different, right? And so when we try to meet a person's need, we try to boil it down and say, hey, what do you actually need? And then we try to meet what they need, not what they say they 
want. This is really important, particularly if you're dealing with the LGBTQ plus community. I was talking to Pastor Harv just recently, and you know, Pastor Harv, he always has really great questions to kind of just get you to think about different things and, and talk about, well, what's kind of changed, you know, in the last five, six years now that COVID has gone by? And I was just thinking, I was going, you know, what's really interesting is that as a pastor, I still try to meet with people, you know, counsel with people because I want to know what our people are dealing with, what's going on in life. So I meet with people. And it's interesting to me that now over half of my appointments are dealing with this issue. Grandparents, parents, stuff like that, coming in and saying, what do I do? How do I deal with it? What's going on? And these people are in need. And one of the things that we talk about over and over again is they say, well, this person says, I have to affirm them and accept them. If I don't, my own grandchild you know, they're going to reject me because they're saying I'm a hypocrite and I don't love them. And so we always go to this conversation and is that, okay, well, what do they want and what do they actually need? Right? You got to kind of separate those a little bit. What they're wanting is for you to agree. Can you do that? Well, not really because I'm scared and frightened for where that path leads. And I go, well, the research shows that you're right. You should have a concern. But the other side of it is this is, well, what does this person need? Well, they do need love from their grandma and grandpa, or they need love from their parents. They need love from their siblings. They, okay. So the question is, how do you figure out what is loving, right? What they need and what they want. How do you figure that out? How do you navigate that? Okay. And so, because once you understand who your neighbor is, Jesus says something very important, which is the last point. What does he say? Go and do likewise. So if my neighbor is a person in need, what's my responsibility to that person? And this is where I think the social conscience of the church is very important. We should have a social conscience. It's often not what we say, but it's what we do that has the biggest impact on people's lives. You know, during COVID, um, there, are tw there were 23 food pantries in the Treasure Valley. 20 of them closed because of COVID. And the reason why is because you know what the average age of a food pantry volunteer is? About 66, 67 years of age, right? And they were the ones that said, this COVID's really bad for you. There's no vaccine, no nothing. And so rightfully so, they were like, oh, maybe I better quarantine until we can get a little figure out on this. Our church did the opposite. Instead of closing, we ramped up. We gave somewhere between four to five times as much food away. It, 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 the way we have to gauge how much food we give away is we weigh it in tons because we give that away. And we changed our entire delivery system. People used to come in and we'd meet them face-to-face. We, we totally pivoted. They stayed in their car. We would go up. You wouldn't even touch them and we would hand it to them. And so we did all this kind of stuff. I was really, really proud of our church because people were in need. You know what we didn't do? We didn't ask people what religion they were before we gave them food. We didn't ask them it, what country they immigrated from before we gave them food. When people lined up, you know what we did? We gave them food. 
Prior to this, we had a large clothing uh, ministry and uh, COVID closed it down because the people who collected and distributed it, they all closed down. It says, but we've just relaunched it again, you know, and we got a bunch of clothes. And so we're trying to give these clothes away. We want to clothe people. It's particularly important to uh, men and women who are in transitional housing or they're getting out of prison or they're coming out of addiction and all this kind of stuff. We want to be able to give them because good clothes, clean clothes make a huge difference in their well-being. So, so we're doing that now. I mean, I could keep going on and that is, is that what we're known for is what we do oftentimes, not what we say. Now that's a church's conscience. The next question becomes is, what is your personal conscience for your life? How do you know that you have a conscience and that you're like the good Samaritan? You're overcoming your own barriers to being generous for, to those in need, right? You're overcoming your own barriers to being generous to those in need. Well, the first step that I think that helps is you have to ask yourself, what do I need and what do I want? Now, having wants is not a problem and getting things that you want is not a problem. My point is, is that when you determine the difference, it helps you be more generous because you can discern the difference between a need and a want in your own life. And then you can turn around and ask the question, what do people need as opposed to what they want? See, oftentimes what we do is somebody will come up and say, I want this. And we want to be generous and we want to be nice. So we capitulate to it. But oftentimes that's enabling instead of helping. And so it's really important to be a part of things where people have figured out we really understand the science of generosity. We understand the science of giving and supplying and supporting needs of people. Missions is a perfect example you know, when I first started 40 years ago in the ministry, the whole thing was, is that we want to take a missionary from America. We want to train them and we want to send them to a foreign country to do a good job. They go down there, they build a mission and then they retire and leave. And what would happen to their mission and all the people there? It just disappear. So we changed our entire strategy. He said, well, maybe what we ought to do is find somebody who loves Jesus, who's a native of that country and wants to reach their countrymen. And then let's tie into what they're doing and what they're supporting. And what we found is intergenerational missional growth. And that is, is their kids grew up and their kids would take over the ministry and it just continued to grow and grow and grow. As a matter of fact, one of our missionaries, uh, Eve Prophet, who's in Haiti, right? He got his start because his dad was a missionary in Haiti. And Eve was born and raised in Haiti. His dad was born and raised in Haiti. So this, this shift made a big difference. So having people who understand the science of generosity and real helping is important and being a part of that. So I, I kind of want to close and bring all this around. It's like, how do we go from I can't have anything to do with you because you belong to a different political party. I can't have anything to do with you because you have these, this ideology over here and it's opposed to me. I can't talk to you because you say you're a Christian and you go to church. I don't want anything to do. How do we get out of that mess? How do we go from that to E pluribus unum? Well, the best way is I'm not a politician. I am not the president. I'm not the Supreme Court. All I am is a follower of Christ. And when I see my neighbor is a person in need and I seek to meet that need, that's how I make a difference. That's how you do it. So if you want to ask yourself, are you making a difference? I have a picture to show you right here. 
Look at this. These are apple trees. There are pictures of them at the same seasonal time, kind of in the fall when the apples are turning. And you can tell by the kind of the, the, the leaves up here just kind of starting to turn. This one is out in the field. And what you'll notice is uh, since they're both apple trees, uh, they look a little different. And I'm going to ask you a question. Which one is alive? Can you tell? Well, of course you can, right? Of course you can. The leaves and the fruit do not make the tree live. The leaves and the fruit do not give life to the tree. But the way that you know the tree is alive by what? It's fruit and it's leaves. Our generosity, our loving our neighbor does not empower and, and give us faith. What gives us faith is Jesus Christ and the power of his blood and his resurrection. That's what gives our life to our faith. But you know how your faith is alive or dead? Whether you have any fruit or leaves in it. So ask yourself this question. Where's the fruit in my life right now? Let's stand for closing prayer. Lord, we thank you for what you did in this country and your influence over it. But it's really just a foreshadowing or reflection, shadow of the greatest thing of all. And that is through the death, resurrection of your son, Jesus, you have given us life. Amen. God bless you guys.